Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, we, uh, we recognize that uh, a lot of times from our perspective and from what's going on in our lives, it's, sometimes it's difficult to trust in your goodness. It's difficult to trust that you have a plan in the midst of hardship and strife and pressure, Lord, all of the many things that we face in this world. And so, Father, right now we lay those things at the feet of Jesus. And we say, Lord, we're trusting in your goodness. We're trusting in you right now. Knowing in full confidence that you hear us, that your presence is with us, and that you lavish your love on us. So right now, Lord, we put our hearts in a posture of receiving your love. Unmerited, undeserved, but ours because of your grace and your mercy that you have poured on us so generously. And we just receive, Lord. We receive your love. Allow it to trickle over our hearts and seep into the deep places, into the cracks of the concrete places of our hearts, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would work deep things in us this morning. So, Father, as we open up your word, and as we as we study what the early part of the church is like, Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would prick our hearts with the importance of prayer and that connection with you, Lord, that you would quicken us to pray in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that through that you would bind us together as one body, one bride, look at you with one with one purpose and one vision which is just to give you back the glory all glory honor and praise so father I, I pray um, you would soften our hearts this morning and speak through Tim and, uh, and Lord I pray that the word would impact us in a really powerful way we're yours we surrender to you now in Christ's name we pray Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning for um, our worship service here. I'll draw your attention to these little half bulletin sheets that we have. Um, several things going on in the life of the church this week that you need to know about. Um, first, this evening at 6 o'clock, we'll be continuing our 1 Corinthians study led by Jason. If you've missed uh, the first couple weeks of those, those videos are available if you want to catch up. There is child care provided tonight, so um, we'd love to have any of you join us at 6 o'clock tonight. It's a really rich um, study of the scriptures. Also, uh, we have several kids' ministry things going on during the week throughout the summer. Terrific Tuesdays and then preschool story time on Thursdays. Make note of those in this if you have children or grandchildren who are a part of those age groups. And then we, this Thursday, we have a tech volunteer training. And I've told you a few times, and I'll say again, uh, we are in our last series of weeks in this room. And on August 14th, the plan is that we will gather together for worship in the big room at 1030, one service, uh, beginning August 14th. Um, but, um, but along the way for that, um, I'll tell you too, we need some more help in some important areas of ministry. And then there's all sorts of areas of ministry where we need help. We need, we need greeters. We need people to sit at the Welcome Center. And one area that we're focusing on right now is on our tech, tech team. They wanted me to tell you that um, you don't have to be an expert to be a part of our tech team. They want to train you. They're looking for just willing helpers that can um, use the, the programs that they use. Just with a basic skill level, they'll, they'll train you in how to use them and they have, they'll feed you dinner this Thursday. There's a sign-up sheet. So if you have any interest in that, if you just want to get a free dinner and say you're going to help and not help, they'll forgive you later. Um, just kidding, guys. Mostly kidding. Um, then lastly, uh, this uh, Saturday, August the 6th, is our first Saturday fellowship. Um, those are things that we've done for 
about the last four or five months. It's been a lot of fun. This month, the plan is uh, meet in the gym three to five that day for watermelon and wiffle ball. So that is all ages are invited. Bring your kids, bring yourself, um, and just come and hang out. And it's just a fellowship event for all ages from the church. And I'll, now we're going to show you a video highlight of our um, Vacation Bible School week. We had that a few weeks ago. We wanted to show you some pictures and videos from that to just see what God did um, through our kids that week. Perhaps the most unexpected, we, none of us saw it coming, that the kids actually wanted the camera guy, of all people, to get the ice water at the end. But um, that, uh, um, Ellis Stevens was our camera guy for the week, and he put that video together. So thanks, Ellis, for highlighting just the excitement of the week, the fun of the week. And um, we had over 70 kids involved, and God clearly worked through the kids, through the leaders, so thanks to all of you that were a part. Please continue to pray for those kids that were involved. We'll go to Acts chapter 4. What we're doing this summer in July and August is we're talking about why we actually gather together. What is the, the point of our gatherings? What, is the, the goal, what are the goals of our gatherings that we want to be physically present with each other in the same room, in the same building, in order to worship in order to read the word and actually pray together. And so this week we'll, we'll continue that. Last week um, we had uh, the staff got together, we did a little bit of a staff training thing, and we did the sort of thing that's predictable that everybody does when you have any sort of staff or team training. You do the personality test thing, right? And it's just this thing that you have to do 
to understand everybody's personality. So we did multiple different tests, one of which is the Myers-Briggs, which if you're familiar with, it gives you four different letters to identify your personality. And there's, you know, ISTJ, there's ENFJs, ENFPs, all those different things. But as we do this, the first thing on the Myers-Briggs that it separates and one of the cool way that we did is we actually were able to map out and see which members of our staff team has different characteristics between um, introversion, extroversion, all of those different categories represented by the letters in the Myers-Briggs. Well, what's, when you do that, it can provide great insight in many categories to people that you don't know. But one of the things about doing it with the staff, where we've all actually gotten to know each other pretty well already, even though we have two fairly new members, is when we map that out, everybody know what's, knows what's coming, at least on the introversion, extroversion spectrum. Like, there's nothing on that list for any of us that is surprising, because we know who likes to be chatty around the office, and we know who likes to who likes when other people don't know they're in their office by themselves. And so we have the, the hiding category, myself and AJ, and we have, we have the, the social category that, that is out there wanting to um, collaborate, wanting to talk, wanting to interact. But, so if there's people that you know, you're not going to be surprised by introversion and extroversion on those sort of things. Today we're talking about prayer. And I'm going to ask you a question. How does your personality, your introversion or extroversion, affect your prayer life? Because one of the things I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks is I've been reflecting on personality and our own staff team and reflecting on prayer and us gathering together. I do believe that personality affects the way we pray in more ways than we recognize. Because what we're doing this morning is we are not talking about you by yourself in your prayer closet, just you and God praying to him. That's a great way to pray. That's the introversion prayer method of just you alone with God. And I love that. The, the way God has wired me is, though I tend to be on the staff team, I tend to be the loud one. I'm the one that comes in and yells good morning to everybody. I am the loudest voice. I get that. I'm also the introverted one. And is my personal walk with Christ, I like it to be personal. I like it to be quiet. I like the time alone with God where I'm in my office by myself or in my house by myself. I like quiet prayer when nobody else is around or reading my scripture when nobody else is around. But, but that's not... Ultimately, that's not the only way to pray, and that's not the path towards rounding out a healthy prayer life. And see, God, one of God's great gifts to me is Jess, who constantly pushes me out of that introversion and into, hey, you know, like there's other people in the world that you've got to be connected with, primarily like her, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, you should know something about your, your pastor's family um, I tend to not be the one that initiates prayer when Jess and I pray together. That's her, because my prayer method is, everybody be quiet, I'm praying. And not incorporating other people within my prayer life. That's, that's a Jess thing. She wants us to come together in prayer. And, and so your introversion or your extroversion is going to affect the way you pray and the health of your prayer life specifically in how you pray with other people, or if you pray with other people. So for some of you, it might be a, a hurdle to get over what we're talking about here today to where I tell you that the scriptures say prayer is important not just for you in your private little space with God. That's important. But also, praying together is important. Gathering with other believers to pray is also important important. And so that's the goal of this whole eight weeks in July and August when we continually talk about why we gather and what we do when we gather. A couple weeks ago, we asked the question, does it matter that we gather at all? And we saw from Scripture, Scripture is calling us together and not to neglect the meaning of togetherness that we have. We saw last week how the Scripture needs to be the center of what we do. But this week we talk about 
why prayer is an essential of what we do as well. And so for that, we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 23. But before we um, go too far into the reading of 4.23 and following, I'll give you the background. Because the first four words of Acts 4.23, when they were released. And so as we're dropping into a passage of Scripture here, we need to understand where we are, okay, and, and what we're even talking about. Acts 4 is only a, a few weeks after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven, and then the day of Pentecost came. This is days after Pentecost in Acts 4. And so days after Pentecost is 50 days after cross and resurrection. So we're talking about 50 to 60 days after the death of Christ, two months after Christ died. Here we are in Acts chapter 4 on the timeline. The they in this passage is Peter and John. What did Peter and John do wrong that they had to be released? They healed a lame man. Because there in Jerusalem, there was a man who was begging for money. And as Peter and John, and this story is told at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. And as they're going up, they see this man that is begging for money. And the beauty of this story is that everybody in Jerusalem had walked by this guy. This, this guy was in a prominent place. He was lame from birth. He was over 40 years old, and so everybody knew who he was, knew his condition, and knew where he sat to beg for money. So he asks Peter and John for money, and they say, well, we can't help you with money, but what we can do is we can tell you to get up and walk. And the man walks, and he even leaps, and he praises God in response to what God has done. And that's the problem. Because Peter and John are arrested. Because Peter, John, and the guy that used to not be able to walk and now can walk and run through town, they are all proclaiming that Jesus is how this happened. And that was the problem. The problem was not that there was a guy that couldn't walk that could now walk. The Jews were fine with that. The problem was that Jesus was getting the credit. The problem was that Peter and John were now emboldened, and everybody else was emboldened by not just saying, our, our leader rose from the dead, and then he floated up into heaven. Now they can say, look, we just healed this lame guy. This is the power of God in display. It could not be faked. Everybody knew it was real. Everybody knew who he was. And so Peter and John get arrested, and then they, just, then they get called into this council. This is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council of high priests and leaders within the Jewish um, community. And Peter and John have to stand trial for what they've said and what they've done. And here's the funny part about this. These Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, they have this crisis because they know, and Peter and John know, that everybody knows that this guy really was legitimately healed. And so they can't tell them to take it back. They can't tell them to pretend it didn't happen. All they can do is strongly urge them not to tell people that Jesus did this. Because the problem, again, wasn't the lame man walking. The problem wasn't Peter and John. The problem was Peter and John giving Jesus credit. That's what the Jews didn't want. And, and see, but, but as Peter and John were doing this, there were people praying for them, and Peter and John spoke honestly before the council, listen, I, I, you, you don't have to like what we're doing, but we are going to continue to obey God. We are not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. And then in the end, the Jewish leaders recognize they'll have a riot on their hands if they continue to imprison Peter and John for no other reason than for healing a guy that could not walk. That's not, the, the crowd's already seen the guy walk. The crowd knows you've arrested him because the guy can walk. They cannot keep them. So, in verse 23, Peter and John are released. But Peter and John are released after suffering, after being beaten, after being imprisoned, and now they return to the believers, the family of God gathers together again in Acts 4.23. That's where we'll pick it up. When they were released, 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to ask the question, is it necessary, is it important for us as believers in Christ to not just pray on our own from our own homes, but to actually gather together in physical presence and pray together? And to answer that, we're going to look at six aspects of prayer from this one passage in Acts chapter 4. Number one, simple. They gathered together. They prayed together. Verse 24 says, when they had heard the report from Peter and John, they lifted their voices together to God and said. So the prayer is actually multiple voices being lifted together to God. And this is an aspect of togetherness in prayer that's really important for us to recognize because it doesn't always feel like that in practice. Because my hope is when I'm up here leading a prayer, that I am not just praying like I would at my home by myself, but that actually we are praying. And so this week, Jason did it. Jason led our intercessory prayer time right before I came up here. And Jason led us in prayer. And in leading us in prayer, yes, Jason prayed. But the challenge that each of us has is that we have to then figure out how are we participating with the prayer that's being offered to where we are agreeing and we are lifting our hearts and minds in worship. And when the person that is praying out loud is worshiping God, we join our hearts in worship. When they are petitioning God, we join our hearts in that request. When they are praising God, we praise. And that, that is a, a thing that I don't think we instruct or talk about enough. That actually, we do not want you to be spectators. And, and here's the unfortunate part, is that it feels like you are. It feels like, this is exactly what I was talking about last week when we talked about the word. It feels like I'm the leader, you're the spectators. I'm the teacher, you're the students. And it feels like that when we have somebody up here praying. Sometimes it feels like that when we have people up here playing music. You're spectating, you're watching them use their skill. But all three tasks, whether it's the reading and preaching of the scriptures, prayers to God, or leading music, all three tasks are meant to be leading you in worship of God through the word, in worship of God through prayer, and in worship of God through song. That's the goal of what we do. And I recognize that sometimes the context of it doesn't quite feel like that's what's happening. It feels like you're the spectator. But the goal is that anytime there's somebody up here praying, we're praying together. And then you, you take from that, and that, that's a Sunday morning context, but what about Wednesday night? Every Wednesday night at 7, we have a prayer meeting. And it's a powerful group, but it's a small group. And this small group of people that gather together, there is great power as we pray together. And sometimes... One person prays, and then another person prays, and it just sort of ping-pongs around the room as other people are praying. We have a, a group of ladies that does that on Thursday morning. We have our elders that do that every other Monday night here. We have all sorts of other different groups of people that pray together, and there's beauty, and there is power when there are people that are praying together. But in each of those moments, it's not like, you know, you were... Um, 
I'm sure you guys didn't have this problem, but some of us that had problems with paying attention in class or speaking in class out of turn, even the introverted ones, um, there were these things where you have like a, a talking stick, you know, only the person that had the stick was allowed to talk. And it's like you can't talk over everybody, only the person that's holding the stick at a time. And, and he's talking stick, only the person with the microphone's allowed to talk, right? Well, in a prayer meeting, like let's put this in a small setting. In a prayer meeting, like on Wednesday night, it can feel like that. Like, okay, it's your job, you're praying, I'm just going to sit here quietly while you pray, and then I'll jump in and I'll take the talking stick when it's my turn. But that's not actually how corporate prayer is supposed to work. That's how it feels on the outside. But if I'm in prayer meeting, and one of my brothers or sisters is here praying, then my job is not to wait and think about what I'm going to say and just stay quiet and try to to pay attention to what they're saying until I get the chance to talk. My job in that moment when somebody else is praying is to join my heart with them. That, that, that I am agreeing with them in their prayer, whether I'm agreeing silently or vocally, but agreeing with what they're saying and actually asking God to make what they are asking for come to fruition and actually praising God with them. And so one of the challenges here of this passage for all of us, is active prayer, listening, and participation. That when we're not the one that's vocally leading the prayer, we're actually participating. And I don't know what it looked like in Acts 4. I don't know what what Luke means when he says they lifted their voices together. I think they were probably talking over each other a little bit. I think there were probably uh, lots of people that were talking and saying similar things at the same time. I think it was a little bit confusing. And y'all, just so you know, that's okay in a prayer meeting. It's okay to talk over one another. It's okay to be joining your voices to God together at the same time. And so there's, but what I want you to see here is that togetherness was their voices were together. But what we know of this group of people in Acts 4 is it wasn't just that they were in the same physical place or that they were saying the same vocal words. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. I don't have that on the screen, but if you have your scripture in front of you, you can go down and look at it. Verse 32. The full number of those who believed, same group of people, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. So in their prayer meeting, there was not this sense of, There was never a sense of rivalry or disconnect within the relationships of the community. They were able to pray in unison and in community because they lived in community. Because nobody walked into the prayer meeting hungry while the other person was overstuffed. Because when the person that was overstuffed had excess food at his table, he shared it with the hungry person. And nobody walked into the prayer meeting frustrated that they didn't have any good clothes to wear while these people were all dressed to the nines because the people that were lacking in clothes received clothes from those who had plenty. There there was a radical sense of this community that enabled the prayers to be in radical unity as well. And so let's just say this, if we're going to have power in prayer meeting, we need to have togetherness outside of prayer meeting too. We need to play wiffle ball together right? We, we, we need to have those sort of events that are fellowship and fun events to where we, we can have fun together, we can serve together, we, we can worship together, and we can pray together. Because not all the time are we, are we going to build relationships in, through just a Sunday morning worship service. I believe that one of the things that God is doing in us right now is shaking us up as a body by forcing us to worship in a different room, in a different setting. You're sitting in different seats than you sat in 20 years ago. Whereas when we were over there six months ago, you're sitting in the same seat you were 20 years ago. And, and now it's, it's, it's this kind of shaking up of the community, shaking up of relationships. And it's a good challenge for the church to come out of this and say, how are we living in relationship? How are we living in community together? Let me ask you this about, on this note, so we'll we'll say it this way, that being together in prayer means your voices are joined together. It means your hearts are joined together to pray for the same things. It also means that your lives are joined together as a radical community. 
What happens, though, if somebody's praying something that you don't necessarily agree with? Let's say, let's take a simple example. Let's say somebody that you love is praying for an opportunity to move away from you. God, I don't want that to happen. Somebody says, I pray that I get this job, you know, on the other side of the country. I don't want you to get that job. I want you to stay here. What, am, am I allowed to then have one heart and one mind in prayer with somebody that I disagree with their desire? Let's say it's a family member. Let's say it's an, it's an adult child and you think, no, you know, I think you're better off here in Dalton, Georgia than over there. I know you like the idea of that job and that allure, but are you allowed to pray something different than what somebody that you love is praying? And what I would say to that is I think there can be great oneness in that prayer even still because this, this goes into our theology and our understanding of prayer in general. That when we pray, yes, we express to God the desires of our heart, but we express to God the desires of our heart with this great humility that we don't know the right answer to every single question. And praying about a potential move or a potential big family step means, if we're praying about it, it means we don't know what the result is. It means we don't know what God's best is. And so the ultimate goal for both parties, the one that wants to move to L.A. because it's way cooler than Dalton, and the parent that wants them to stay in Dalton because they want them to live close, the, the right approach to prayer is to pray for God's best and God's plan, that God would be the one directing steps. Even when this person wants one thing and this person wants another thing, we humbly submit our will to God and says, not, not our will, Father, but your will be done in that prayer. So oneness in prayer doesn't mean that we're actually all asking for the same things all the time, but it means the overarching narrative of our prayer life is asking for God's best, for God's kingdom to grow, for people to come to know him, and for God to get the glory for it all. One verse that gets used to talk about this concept of praying together is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. And that's the passage that says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And that's a passage that makes me really uncomfortable with the way that people use it sometimes. Because being used as a fellowship and community verse, you can get the wrong understanding. Because here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, when you're in your prayer closet by yourself, I'm not there with you because two or three are not gathered. We can't take that verse to mean that. This is not a general community verse of the Holy Spirit is only there, or Jesus by his Spirit is only there when people are gathered together and there's more than one believer. No, no, no. We know that the Spirit of God indwells every true believer in Jesus. Everyone that's been saved by the gospel has been regenerated and the Spirit is there. And Jesus, through the Spirit of God, is with you as you're alone in the physical presence of nobody else. It's a beautiful promise from Scripture that cannot be ignored here. So what then is Matthew 18 said? Well, it's important to understand in context, Matthew 18 comes at a crisis point. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18 is a brother, a member of the community of Jesus' followers who has sinned against somebody else in the community. And that brother needs to be confronted and called out. And how do you do that? In the midst of this confrontation of sin within the assembly of Jesus' followers, Jesus is saying, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, in the context of confronting sin and seeking the peace of the body, there I am to give special blessing and special presence. And I think that says something to this church in Acts 4 too. Because they were gathered in crisis too. They weren't gathered in the crisis of there was sin in the camp. They were gathered in the crisis of two of their leaders were imprisoned. And two of their leaders were imprisoned precisely because their ultimate leader had already been imprisoned and killed. And nobody, none of the Jewish leadership of the day wanted Jesus' name to continue to be proclaimed. So therefore, Jesus' followers were targeted. Everybody, everybody that was gathered in that room, I guarantee you, had some level of concern over their own physical safety seeing what they had seen in the weeks beforehand. Two months ago, the God whose name they proclaimed was on a cross, was killed with the great violence of the Roman Empire uh, taking part in that, in that execution. 
And so Peter, the day of the crucifixion, Peter wasn't just on a whim changing sides. Peter was afraid when he denied Jesus. And Peter's fear was reasonable from a human perspective. Was reasonable when the guy that you're following gets arrested and he's about to be killed. It's reasonable to fear that if you identify with him, then you're going to get arrested and at least beaten or killed as well. And so these people had this crisis moment in their mind as they were gathering together to prayer. And, and, and I want you to see this. Crisis connects this community in greater togetherness. In the same way that the crisis of Matthew 18 unites the people and God gives special blessing to people that are gathered to deal with a crisis in his name, so is God especially present when his people are suffering together. That's just one point. I guess we should go on to the other ones. So they prayed together, and they're together in everywhere. Their voices, their physical presence, their, um, their living in community, their suffering together. It's a deep, deep togetherness that they are experiencing. But in their prayer also, they appealed to God's sovereignty. Verse two, the first two words of the prayer, sovereign Lord. And then they go on to say, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They are giving God the glory for everything that has been done in creation. They are proclaiming God's control, his sovereign rule over everything. Now, here's the thing about prayer. Some people see God's sovereignty as an obstacle to prayer. Because some, some people have this logical problem with prayer and God's sovereignty to say, if God is sovereign over everything, God has a perfect plan, God has purposes for everything, then why do I pray and try to change what God has already purposed? God's going to do what God's going to do. Why do I need to be involved and active in prayer? But I want us to think about this from another, from another angle. What if God was not sovereign? Then would you pray? The, the people that see God's sovereignty as an obstacle to their prayer because God's already got everything figured out and he has perfect control over everything. If you see that as an obstacle, let's say that obstacle is not there. Then what's your prayer life like? If God is not sovereign, then you are calling out to somebody who is not in control. You are calling out to somebody who's not all-powerful, who didn't speak the world into being. That is not a, a better option there. It is, in fact, our prayer, is, the sovereignty of God is not an obstacle to prayer. It is a motivator for prayer. It is the pillar and the foundation of our prayer life to say that God is sovereign over all. He controls all. He, he is capable of changing our circumstances, and he cares to listen, and he loves his people and his good creation. And so it is, in fact, the foundation of our prayer life is God's sovereignty. But with God's sovereignty, there's still this question of, why do we pray if God has these ultimate purposes and plans? And, and there's, there are several lines of questioning within Scripture that in the end we have to embrace an element of mystery with the way God tells us He is and the way God calls us to live our lives. Because there's something about the way God has designed this world to work that He maintains ultimate control ultimate power. His purposes and plans transcend everything else. And yet, within his purposes and plans, he has asked us to take an active, and not passive, but an active part in what he does. Through both our obedience to his word and his actions. Because if you take the approach of, I'm not going to pray because God is sovereign, he's going to do whatever, you would take that same approach to literally do nothing in your Christian life. Why, why act in obedience? Why read the word? Why, why share your faith? Why, why do anything if God's going to do what he does and you have no confidence in your role in that, then why do anything? But no, God in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty has called you to actually be an active part of his plan. He has called you to be active in your obedience to build his kingdom. He has called you to be active in your prayer, to actually act in relationship with him. 
Because God is a relational God that intentionally places himself in relationship with his people and then calls his people to walk in that relationship. Never mistake, God is the one that initiates and achieves the relationship. God is the one who has created us, who has saved us, who has made the way for our salvation to be accomplished. But he is calling you to participate in that relationship, to communicate with him, and to walk through this life with him. And he has told us that our prayers matter. And he has sovereignly decided to work in people and allowed people to work with him in the great task that he is accomplishing of one day every nation, every tongue, every tribe will come together and worship him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And somehow our obedience and our prayers are a part of God accomplishing that purpose and plan. And that, that story that call should call us into the greatness of this endeavor of what prayer with God is. That we don't just pray little things like stubs toes. We pay, pray big things like, like transformation of entire kingdoms and people groups in the name of God. We pray for the world to change and his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because we believe that one day that will be so. And if we believe that one day that will be so, then what we're doing is we're praying for that day to come quicker. And we're praying for God to use us as a part of that great endeavor, part of that historical world-changing movement. We want to be part of it, God. So by my prayers, will you allow me to participate in what you're doing? So we pray big things. But we pray those personal pain moments too. Don't get me wrong. We pray those little things. Just don't go so out of balance that you are only praying the little things and forgetting about the grandeur of God's ultimate purpose and plan. We do both. We pray for the, for the headache to go away because it's limiting our effectiveness at our job that day. But we also pray for the nations to come to know the saving work of Jesus. We pray big things and we pray little things and we pray because he is sovereign. Number three, Verse 25 through 27, the people recognized their own desperation before the presence of God. Verses 25 and 26, they're actually quoting from Psalm chapter 2. And it's a timely quote that they then explain in their prayer why they're quoting it in verse 27. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That's Psalm 2, 1. It's also the second half of Acts 4, 25. Acts 4.26 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So those two verses from Psalm 24 and 25, or 25, sorry, Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, they're quoting it in Acts 4.25 and 26. Why are they doing that? So here's the interesting thing about Psalm 2. Many generations of faithful Jews faithfully interpreted Psalm 2 and they thought the last word of Psalm 2-2 was talking about Israel. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed slash Israel. And there were so many interpretations of this passage that says the nations are gathered together against the whole of the nation to defeat the people. And what all of a sudden these new covenant believers in Christ saw when they saw the cross and the resurrection, they saw that the word anointed is the word for Messiah, is the word for Christ. And they saw the, the, the direct linguistic connection that anointed Messiah, Christ, that Psalm 2-2 and it's quoted in Acts 4-26 is not just talking about the nation of Israel, that the kings of the earth are trying to destroy the nation of Israel, but it's talking about kings of the earth, multiple kings, multiple rulers conspiring together to defeat the Messiah who they know as Jesus. And so then, verse 27, they interpret their prayer and say, gee, we know of multiple kings and rulers who have conspired against Jesus. And they say in their prayer, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, Herod and Pontius Pilate. Two, now listen, here's the, the thing about Herod and Pontius Pilate. They represented two different people groups. 
Herod, the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome. They were part of governing over distinct people groups within the multinational empire of Rome. And they were conspiring together along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel were not the ones being conspired against. They were doing the conspiring in Acts 4.27. The people of Israel were conspiring with the rulers of the nations against God's true anointed, the Messiah. And in that, what they're recognizing is they're going to keep conspiring against us now. Peter and John were already imprisoned. They were already beaten. They, they know Stephen's going to be martyred two chapters after this. Then, then others are going to be killed not long after that. And the disciples are going to be scattered by the persecution. And they know they are in imminent danger in that moment as they're gathered to pray. And what can we learn from this? We are far more desperate than we realize. That often we don't know how desperate our situation is, how dangerous our situation is until it's too late. And when it is too late, we don't have a chance to pray anymore because the crisis has now come upon us. And in this very moment, the, the forces of darkness of this world are conspiring against God's anointed even now. And the people called by his name, people like us Christians, the, the rulers of the powers of the darkness of this world are conspiring against us to stop the movement of this and every church that names the name of Jesus and to stop the thriving and the health of you because you name the name of Jesus. So you too are in a place of great danger physically and spiritually where a real enemy is trying to stop the spirit of God from working in you and stop what God could do through you. They say that foxholes make great prayer lives. But we as Christians recognize that we are in that place of desperation in spiritual wartime at all times. And what we need most is to recognize the precarious position in which we find ourselves. Even when, and we can recognize now, it looks like the world is against us, it looks like things are really bad in our world, culture, and society, but even when they're not really bad on the surface, they're really bad beneath the surface. And so in times like this, it might be easier for us to get this. The world is, is dark and the world is broken and we pray for God's movement. And so we can get that in this stage. But, but I'm talking about even when society looks a little better on the outside, we're still in that state of desperation. We're still in that state of great harm and great danger and we don't even know it. So how do we come together and deepen our corporate prayer times? Recognize our corporate desperation. Recognize that we are all in danger and that we need Christ as a sustaining presence in all that we say and do. Number four, verse 28 says, they prayed in great trust. Where do we see that in verse 28? Look at it. So in verse 27, Pontius Pilate, King Herod, the Gentiles and the nation of Israel are all held responsible for, for conspiring against Jesus. And all of a sudden, that group of four in verse 27, the four groups of bad guys in verse 28, they were doing what God's hand had predestined to take place. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did these guys just let Herod, Pontius Pilate, Israel, and the Gentiles off the hook for conspiring against Jesus? What is he talking about now? But this, what I want you to see here, is this is a display of great trust. That God can overcome evil with good. That that is actually his specialty, and that is the heart of the gospel. That what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews did in crucifying Jesus was evil. And yet it was evil that resulted in our good. And we're actually really happy with how the story ended, despite the evil and the pain that took place in it. Because God in his mercy and in his justice was able to show justice to punish sin and mercy to those who deserve to be punished for sin. And he took the evil sin of Pontius Pilate and Herod and he worked it for the good for those who believe. And part of our prayer life, both individually 
and corporately is recognizing that this is what God does. That God can and does use surprising circumstances to accomplish his purposes in surprising ways. God can and does use things that seem traumatic and painful, that really are traumatic and painful on the front end, and he uses them for our good on the back end. That our deepest hurts and our deepest sorrows can actually be transformed into our deepest joys because of the presence of Christ and the power of God working through us. That's what radical trust is in our prayer life. We can trust that God is working even when the world looks exceptionally dark. We can trust that God has a plan even for the death of his son, even for the crisis that shocked all of Jesus' disciples. God had a purpose, God had a plan, and he enacted it. But then they also prayed in boldness. They demonstrated boldness in Acts 3, and then they prayed for more boldness in Acts 4. Verse 29, their prayer is for boldness. God, may we not be in fear of these rulers that are telling us to shut up. May we keep speaking the word with boldness. And in verse 31, the result at the end of their prayer is that the whole building shook. And then they left the building filled with the Spirit and continued to speak with boldness. Boldness in ministry is the result of boldness in prayer. These two are connected here. That they are bold to go to the throne of God and to ask him to give them fresh boldness so that they can be more useful in ministry for his name and for his glory. And they, as they are bold in the presence of God himself, God grants them more boldness in the presence of the world. And then God just keeps on growing his church. And lastly, we'll say it this way. They, through it all, prayed in faith. And, And... All the way through this prayer, they're not coming up with their own solutions. They're faithfully dependent on a God who hears and a God who acts. The the prayer is a step of faith that you don't pray if you don't have faith because then you're just talking to the wall. And so the act of prayer is an act of faith to say, God, I know you're you're hearing me. I, I think you care about me. I think you're going to do something. I think you want to do something. Even that is a little bit of faith that leads to a prayer. But I'll show you that in this boldness, in Acts chapter 4, there is a real power in seeing that when you are talking to the right person, things can happen and things can change. I've said it before. We've all had that frustration when we're really concerned with the customer service we received in a setting and we're looking at the server and the server didn't cook our food. We're looking at the person at the counter, and the, count, the person at the counter didn't mess up your hamburger. But you want to talk to somebody that has control, that has power to fix your problem that you are experiencing. And the beauty of our prayer life is we can always go directly to the source that has, that has cosmic control over everything, over every force of this world. And so, yeah, they prayed in faith. So these six aspects taken together call us to pray together. Because what they did in order to make the building shake and result in boldness, they came together in prayer. And I'm going to challenge you. You're going to to need to learn how to not just pray by yourself, but to pray with others. And sometimes praying with others means sitting in silence while listening to somebody else pray. That's okay. I just confessed to you that corporate prayer in my home is often, is, is not initiated by the pastor in the family, but is initiated by Jess. And yet somehow, I'm one of the people in this room that is most likely, admit it to yourself, I'm one of the probably four or five people in this room most likely to make you feel uncomfortable in praying out loud. Because you're going to be praying out loud and you're going to be like, oh, the pastor's here. Is he going to be judging what I say in my prayer? No, I'm not. I'm going to be participating with you in your prayer. And I, I don't always have to be the one that's asked to pray in a meal setting because I'm the pastor. Somebody else can pray. It's okay. We don't have to have the perfect words all the time. We're supposed to be called to community together to pray together. And together we appeal to God's sovereignty. Together we recognize our mutual desperation. Together we pray and trust that he is working even the negative circumstances out for our good. Together we pray in boldness. And together we pray with great faith. So as the band comes up, I'll challenge you this way. Come 
and pray with somebody. Here, Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, in one of our prayer gatherings, come here and pray with somebody. Go deeper in corporate prayer in the presence of another person. But it's not just about coming to pray with somebody. Go to somebody's home to pray with them. Step into the suffering with somebody that is hurting by going to their home and to pray with the griever, to pray with the sick, to pray with the discouraged. And when you do those things, praying with somebody, then just take note and watch how God can work in our midst.
one in this room would feel like they need to carry their burdens and their hardships alone, Father. But not only are you right by their side, Father, but Father, I pray that you would place brothers and sisters in their path to help carry the load and to help carry the burden, Father. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for your presence. Um, Lord, we, we surrender ourselves to you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.